0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. A content warning before today's show. There is going to be a lot of talk about human sexuality and anatomy. You know I don't work blue, but we're looking at the works of Sigmund Freud, so when I say there's going to be a lot, I mean a lot. This would not be the episode to play in mixed company. Welcome to the 50th episode of Your Brain on Facts. Considering the vast majority of podcasts are abandoned after seven episodes, that's no mean feat. To celebrate, I've brought on a bevy of guest hosts to help me tackle a topic I've been wanting to do since the very beginning, the dubious proclamations and legacy of Sigmund Freud. Psychiatry is arguably the least science-based of the medical specialties, and Freudian psychoanalysis arguably the least science-based of those. The father of psychoanalysis, Freud's impact on 20th century thought is undeniable, even though he got almost everything wrong. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. Let's start from the beginning, which is a very good place to start. For some background on the man himself, please welcome our first guest presenter.
2: Hi, this is Emily Prokop from the podcast The Story Behind, The Extraordinary History of the Ordinary, and this is the story behind Sigmund Freud. On May 6th, 1856, Sigismund Freud was born. He was one of eight children to Jacob Freud, who was a wool merchant, and Amalia Nathanson, who was Jacob's third wife. Although his family were Hasidic Jews, Sigismund, or Sigmund, as he became known, didn't practice. When Sigmund was four, his family moved from what is now known as the Czech Republic to Vienna, Austria, where he ended up staying to study medicine at the University of Vienna. He began studying the anatomy of the brain, including the effects of cocaine, before the dangers were as widely known as they are today. He moved away from that, but still used it occasionally for his migraines and as self-medication for his depression. He began working as a clinical assistant then moved on to studying psychiatry. When he met physician and physiologist, Joseph Brewer, he learned about hypnosis for use on patients suffering from hysteria. He watched as patients would come into Brewer, get hypnotized, and then were able to talk through experiences they wouldn't have been able to otherwise and at the end, the patients would feel much better. Freud was fascinated with this, and after traveling to study hypnosis some more, returned to Vienna to open his own practice in 1886. He soon realized that many of his patients didn't need hypnosis, though, but that they just needed an open space to talk. It helped that they could lay on a couch and didn't have to see Freud taking notes next to them. The couch is a fairly well-known trope for therapists in movies and television, but Freud had originally used it to help put people into hypnosis, and it had originated when a patient gifted him one. He also coined the term psychoanalysis for his way of allowing patients to talk about anything that entered their brains. He began developing theories we still learn about today, like the id, ego, and superego, as well as the Oedipus complex. And if you're still in the dark about whether you've heard of Freud or not, you might have heard of Freudian slips, the situation when you mistakenly say something you didn't mean to, but was actually an underlying truth instead. Like when I say, I'm just going to have 30 pieces of chocolate. Oops, I meant three. He was also known to study dreams, believing that they held the key to people's deepest desires. His most famous book, The Interpretation of Dreams, wasn't a big seller when it was first released in 1899. It only sold 351 copies in the first six years. He became a professor at the University of Vienna and began attracting others interested in learning about the complexities of the brain, including Carl Jung. His group was called the Psychoanalytic Society and soon other chapters followed in other cities. But as World War II loomed, Freud kept him and his family in Austria as long as possible. Although by 1933, Nazis began burning his books because even though he is said to have been an atheist, he was still of Jewish heritage. By 1938, he and his family had run into problems with the Gestapo in Austria and left for England. He had married Martha Bernays back in 1882 and went on to father six children with her. He also began smoking in his 20s, believing the habit increased his productivity. But it became a lifelong addiction, even after doctors found a cancerous tumor inside his mouth when he was in his 60s. His mouth cancer became inoperable, and on September 21st, 1939, He asked his colleague and fellow doctor, Max Schur, to end his suffering. He received three heavy doses of morphine, slipped into a coma, and died. Thanks,
0: Emily. If my listener enjoys hearing the surprising origins of everyday items, you'll definitely want to check out the story behind. Sigmund Freud was also a serious polyglot, meaning someone who speaks multiple languages. He had a strong knowledge of German, Italian, Greek, English, Spanish, Hebrew, and Latin, making those of us who got a C in high school French look pretty shabby. It's also been said that he was already reading Shakespeare at the age of eight. Whatever else is said today, no one will be impugning Freud's intellectual capacity. Although he didn't keep his Jewish faith, Freud became a particular target of the Nazis when they rose to power. His books were among those banned in 1933, which caused him to snark, What progress we are making. In the Middle Ages, they would have burnt me. Nowadays, they are content with burning my books. After Germany annexed Austria, the Nazis raided Freud's apartment, and the Gestapo detained and interrogated his daughter Anna. With the assistance of his friend and patient, Princess Marie Bonaparte, a reluctant Freud fled to Paris and then to London with his wife and daughter. Sadly, Bonaparte could not obtain exit visas for four of Freud's sisters, who would tragically die in the concentration camps. Their deaths were beyond their control, but Freud's wasn't. Freud smoked as many as 20 cigars a day, every day. He was quoted as saying that the cigars were essential to his life, that they improved his work. There's a popular story that one of Freud's students suggested that perhaps his constant need to have a cigar in his mouth meant that he had an oral fixation, a disorder that he had postulated, which we'll get into shortly. To this, Freud famously replied, Sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. Except he probably didn't. This deflective response was first documented in 1950, 30 years after it was supposedly said but there are no other references to it to be found in those three decades. After the discovery of a cancerous tumor inside Freud's mouth in 1923, doctors removed a large part of his jaw. Although he underwent 33 additional surgeries over the next 16 years and had to have a prosthesis inserted to separate his sinus from his jaw, Freud never stopped smoking. So maybe we will question his smarts, just a little bit. In addition to tobacco, Freud was a big fan and proponent of cocaine, even bigger than Eric Clapton. In the 1880s, Freud grew interested in a drug being used by a German military doctor to rejuvenate exhausted troops. He distributed doses of cocaine to his friends and future wife and touted the drug's therapeutic benefits in an 1884 paper on coca, which he called "...a song of praise to this magical substance." However, when Freud gave cocaine to close friend Ernst von Fleischel-Marxau to wean him from his morphine addiction and relieve pain, his friend instead developed a serious cocaine addiction. With news of other addictions and overdose deaths spreading, Freud stopped advocating cocaine's medicinal benefits but continued to use the drug for migraines, depression, and nasal inflammation. For those who don't know, Snorting cocaine through a nose that's inflamed by cocaine is a bad idea, to the degree that it can cause tissue death or necrosis. Freud treated this tissue necrosis with more cocaine. His writings on the benefits of cocaine have been called into serious question as he referenced successful outcomes of patients who don't seem to have existed. He published a scientific study on the physiological effects of cocaine on reaction time and muscle strength. His only experimental subject was himself. In his write-up, he tried to explain away his failure to test other subjects, and then claimed he had confirmed his results by testing colleagues, which also cannot be proved. The study was riddled with methodological flaws, and as one biographer commented, may rank among the most careless research studies ever to see print freud was trained as a scientist but didn't live up to its principles in the article on coca he demonstrated poor scholarship omitting crucial references citing references from another bibliography without reading them and making careless errors like misstating names dates and places of publication there were numerous instances where it also appeared that his own drug use was affecting his judgment. He even prescribed cocaine to a patient with diphtheria, an often fatal bacterial infection of the mouth and throat, which most of us thankfully have never encountered, owing to the DTAP vaccine we're given as children. For more on cocaine and some surprising theories about sex and the human nose, welcome our next guest presenter.
1: Thanks for having me, Moxie. I'm Miranda from Interesting Sex Podcast, where I interview people that are into fetish, kink, and BDSM and learn about what they're into. It's sex positive. It's fun. We'd love to have you stop by when you're done with your brain on facts. I thought healthcare was a wreck now, but imagine going to the doctor in the late 1800s, Vienna. Freud was coming into full swing with his ideas and studies of dreams, talk therapy, and, yes, Freud worked with cocaine as a local anesthetic as well as in talk therapy, which honestly might not have been half bad of an idea, because people do talk a lot when they're on coke. No personal experience, just saying. So, over 100 years ago, neurological reflexes emanating from the nose, known as nasal reflex neuroses, were considered to be the cause of many symptoms, including symptoms related to the genitalia. Dr. Wilhelm Fleiss found Freud through his papers on cocaine. He was an otorinologist. I can't say that word, but he was a doctor dealing with the ear, nose, and throat, head, and neck. But he also took an interest in human rhythms and sexual cycles. Fleiss thought the nasal passages had an effect on sleep and chest pains. But then he started linking, along with Freud, the nasal passages with menstrual pain, miscarriages, and psychological disorders. And thus, nasal reflex neurosis was born. Freud, being a patient of Fleiss, started sending his own patients to him as well, unfortunately ending in an almost deadly incident with Emma Eckstein. Freud diagnosed her with hysteria and compulsive masturbation. Masturbation was not considered proper or even safe for women of that time. Freud sent her to Dr. Fleiss, and within a month of seeing Dr. Fleiss, Emma was near the point of death. A second opinion doctor checked her out and found gauze left inside her nose. She went into Freud's office with nervousness and a tendency to masturbate and left slices with half of her face collapsed due to surgery and infection. I appreciate all the work and discoveries these guys made through trial and error, but thank the good lord they aren't my doctor. Because masturbation rules. And like I said, guys, I'm Miranda. I'm with Interesting Sex Podcast. I'd love for you guys to stop by and visit me when you're done with your brain on facts. I talk to people that are into like kink, fetish, and BDSM about who they are, why they're into what they're into, and what makes them tick, how it makes them feel good, and how it's affected their life. I'm always curious, and I'd love to share my curiosity with you. Thanks for having me. Back to you, Moxie.
0: Thanks, Miranda. One of the best-known Freudian theories is his identification of the parts of consciousness. Freud thought that all babies are initially dominated by unconscious, instinctual, and selfish urges for immediate gratification, which he labeled the id. As babies attempt, and fail, to get all of their whims met, they develop a more realistic appreciation for what is possible, which is called the ego. Over time, babies also learn about, and come to internalize and represent, their parents' values and rules. These rules, the superego, are the basis for the developing child's consciousness that struggles with the concepts of right and wrong, and works with the ego to control the immediate gratification urges of the id. Freud didn't discover the unconscious mind, of course. That distinction goes to French psychiatrist Pierre Genet. But it was Freud who took the concept to the next level by breaking it down even further, and by applying it to psychotherapy and free association, where patients would openly talk about their feelings and experiences, regardless of how irrelevant, absurd, or upsetting it sounded. Human genitalia was kind of a big deal with Freud. In fact, he believed that all people's personalities and how well they function in society were a result of developing through five psychosexual stages – oral, anal, phallic, latency, and genital. In Freud's view, each stage focused on sexual activity and the pleasure received from a particular area of the body. In the oral phase, children are focused on the pleasure they receive from nursing and biting with their mouth. In the anal phase, This focus shifts to the anus as they begin toilet training and attempt to control their bowels. If parents take an approach that's too lenient, Freud suggests that anal-expulsive personality could develop, in which the individual has a messy, wasteful, or destructive personality. If the parents are too strict or begin toilet training too early, Freud believed that an anal-retentive personality develops, in which the individual is rigid, orderly, and obsessive. As if potty training wasn't hard enough for parents, adherence to Freud's belief also had to deal with worrying that they would make their children gay by potty training them incorrectly. In the phallic stage, the focus moves to genital stimulation and the sexual identification that comes with whether or not you have a penis. During this phase, Freud thought that children turn their interest and love toward the parent of the opposite sex, and begin to strongly resent the parent of the same sex. This Oedipus complex is named for the Greek tragedy in which the protagonist fulfills a prophecy by unknowingly killing his father and marrying and having children with his mother. Supposedly, boys begin to view their fathers as a rival for their mother's affections. They want to possess their mother and eliminate their father, However, the child also fears he will be punished by his father for these feelings – a fear that Freud termed castration anxiety. Since girls can't feel this castration anxiety, they instead feel permanent penis envy, which we'll revisit shortly. Girls allegedly want to possess their fathers and replace their mothers, which is called an Electra complex. Electra was another ancient Greek character who plotted with her brother to kill their mother but theirs was a revenge plot for the death of their father, so the name is kind of a stretch in this reporter's opinion. Eventually, according to Freud, the child begins to identify with the same-sex parent as a means of vicariously possessing the other parent. The phallic or edible stage was thought to be followed by a period of latency during which sexual urges and interests were temporarily non-existent. Finally, children were thought to enter and remain in a genital stage in which adult sexual interest and activities come to dominate. There have been a number of observations and criticisms of Freud's psychosexual theory through the years, on a number of grounds including scientific and feminist critiques. The theories focused almost entirely on male development. The theories are difficult to test scientifically. Concepts such as libido are impossible to measure, and therefore cannot be empirically tested. Freud said a thing that he can't prove to be true, in a way that makes it hard to prove that it's not true. Future predictions are vague business at best, and should be left to fortune tellers. The length of time between the cause and effect is too great to assume that there's a relationship between the two variables. Freud's theory is based on case studies, not empirical research—on the recollections of his adult patients, but not on any actual observation or study of children. Another criticism of the psychosexual stages is that the theory focuses primarily on heterosexual development—largely ignoring homosexual development, except as a side effect of something gone wrong. Freud's theory suggests that heterosexual preferences represent the normal outcome of development, and suggested that homosexual preferences represent a deviation somewhere in the process. Freud's own viewpoints on homosexuality varied, at times expressing biological explanations, and at other times social or psychological explanations for sexual preference. But to his credit, and dissimilar from many people at the time, Freud did not view homosexuality as a pathology in need of correction. Those psychosexual stages have lent a few phrases to the popular lexicon. For more on that, welcome two of my favorite word nerds.
3: Hi Moxie, it's Dan Pugh.
4: And Shauna Harrison. We host the Bunny Trails podcast, where we take you on a whimsical adventure of idioms and other turns of phrase. We are so excited to be back on the show, so thanks Moxie for having us. Dan, where are we getting started today?
3: Well, we're going to look at two phrases that are often associated with Sigmund Freud. He gave the world a lot of great themes to work with. These days, they're mostly used as comedic devices. Whether suffering from an Oedipus complex, experiencing penis envy, or having daddy issues, people regularly use good old Sigmund's concepts to describe others' behavior. The main thing he did, though, was give us the slip.
4: The Freudian slip, that is. I thought it would be on theme today if we used the Wikipedia definition for this one. It states, (laughs) A Freudian slip, also called parapraxis, is an error in speech, memory, or physical action that occurs due to the interference of an unconscious, subdued wish, or internal train of thought. So that's uh, partially accurate. Here's the original definition on Oxford English Dictionary: an unintentional mistake that seems to reveal a subconscious intention. Oh,
3: nice! Mm. So when did this
4: uh, when did this come about? It actually uh, started with. Uh, Sigmund Freud uh, shortly after he started practicing. He uh, was born in 1856 and uh, died in 1939 and most of these things started creeping into the lexicon uh, just shortly after his death or even while he was still alive. He was made fun of while he was alive by some of his colleagues, but then he also just kind of was respected as well by people. Uh, So in 1963, in Blake wrote in Deadly Joker, It was an odd little slip of the tongue. They call them Freudian slips nowadays. So this was only 30 years after his death. I found references uh, that were in literature in the 50s. So it definitely had been used prior to that.
3: One of my favorite things about a Freudian slip, the common definition is, it's when you say one thing, but you actually mean your mother.
4: (laughs) Well done. On an episode of the YouTube series SciShow Psych, in the video, Do Freudian Slips Mean Anything? There's a great overview of this topic, and it gives the real lowdown on it turns out it's actually all about how our brains process language. We mix things up like words that sound similar in our heads and sometimes our brain doesn't catch the mistake before it reaches our mouth. It's not as much to do with subconscious desires but more the inability to properly process information before blurting it out. And thanks to the fast pace at which trends catch and the dreadfully slow rate at which inaccurate scientific data is corrected in our society, Freudian slip is officially an idiom. (laughs) (laughs) So not only does it not make sense independently uh, if you don't know who Freud is, uh, but its origin has been disproven. Uh, So, you know, you got to love language.
3: That would bug me as a bit of an anal retentive person, which is another thing that came from Freud, isn't it?
4: It very much is. Well done. Anal retentive, which is commonly shortened to anal, describes someone who gives so much attention to detail that it's nearly obsessive and it can be very annoying to others. What? (laughs) Potentially to the point that it it could be harmful even to the uh, anal retentive person.
3: I don't know what you're talking about.
4: (laughs) Uh, It's frequently paired with calling someone a type A. Uh, Anal retentive often has a negative connotation in the United States and uh, in European countries. The Oxford English Dictionary shares this definition as the adjective of relating to or designating the latter part of the anal stage of infantile psychosexual development associated with retention of feces, displaying excessive orderliness, parsimony or obstinacy, interpreted by psychoanalysts as the result of fixation at the anal stage, especially its latter part. And as a noun, a person who displays these characteristics.
3: Nice. Way to way to be lazy, OED.
4: <laughs> While it's still usually seen as a flaw, people use the term now to describe themselves, but often jokingly in that kind of self-deprecating humor style that we all love. Going back to 1999 and the wonderful movie Dogma, we have it used with a little bit of a funny tone here. Loki says never let it be said that your anal retentive attention to detail never yielded positive results. Bartleby replies, you can't be anal retentive if you don't have an anus. And Loki says, outstanding work.
3: I do love that movie. Well, you can find new episodes of Bunny Trails every Wednesday on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. If you'd like to say hello, catch us on Twitter, Instagram, or sometimes even Facebook, all at BunnyTrailsPod. Thanks to you, Moxie, and thanks to all your listeners for having us back on the show. And remember, words belong to their users.
0: Thanks, guys. As we've mentioned, Freud believed every adult characteristic could be linked back to a sexual or quasi-sexual incident in childhood. He was convinced that sexual molestation was the cause of adult psychoneuroses. Freud believed everything his patients told him without the application of critical analysis. He would interpret their dreams as distorted evidence of actual events in their past. Neurotic patients must have repressed their memories of abuse, he thought, and it was his job to bring those to light. At first, he thought nannies were the abusers. Then he came to believe it was almost universally the patient's fathers. When a patient's stories sounded too outlandish to be real, Freud would flip his interpretation. These weren't memories. They were fantasies he decided his patients were merely fantasizing about sex with their fathers because of an Oedipal complex, or because they were trying to cover up childhood masturbation and sexual exploration. Helping patients cover repressed memories isn't limited to Freud, sadly. For a great retelling of how doctors helped cause a satanic panic in the 80s, check out the very first episode of one of my favorite podcasts, You're Wrong About and also episode 22 on multiple personality disorder. And then the rest of the episodes.
4: Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and, 6-1 since that matters. And, what do I even say other than, hey? (sighs) Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now.
5: I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. Plus, my pal and noted China historian, Rana Mitter, joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th.
0: Freud displayed an expanding grandiosity as his career progressed, saying that psychoanalysis was the only possible treatment for certain conditions with very little provable success. When faced with that fact, Freud stated that therapeutic success was not even his primary aim. Rather, he was trying to give patients a conscious awareness of their unconscious wishes. He told a friend, quote, We do analysis for two reasons, to understand the unconscious, and to make a living. We certainly cannot help them. Freud believed dreams could reveal arcane knowledge and were more accurate than conscious memories. He also put stock by the paranormal, numerology, and occultism. He claimed that, it, that his critics weren't entitled to pass judgment on psychoanalysis because they didn't understand it. It's like every bad behavior from an internet comment thread, but being perpetuated by someone that people were trusting to help them. To say that Sigmund Freud had a bit of a problem with women would be an understatement. He held that women were biologically inferior to men, and that women's problems stemmed essentially from them not having a penis. Women, in his view, didn't have a good sense of justice, were weak socially, have a jealous nature, and are exceedingly vain. Freud was also known to believe women to be the problem in society, especially when it comes to incidents of sexual tension. Once a little girl discovers there are different sexes, she experiences penis envy, resenting her mother for denying her one and desiring her father because he has one. As she will never have a penis, or what he's really saying, she will never be a man, a woman will always have an underdeveloped superego and thus remain, quote, morally inferior to men. While Freud promoted penis envy as fact, others had categorized it as a mere reflection of the social mores of the time, which privileged the belief of straight men and viewed women as passive creatures. As Betty Friedan wrote in The Feminine Mystique, because Freud's followers could only see women in the image defined by Freud, inferior, childish, helpless, with no possibility of happiness unless she adjusted to being a man's passive object, They wanted to help women get rid of their suppressed envy, their neurotic desire to be equal. They wanted to help women find sexual fulfillment as women, by affirming their natural inferiority. Freud's views on the inferiority of women derived at least in part from anatomy, even though he never studied anatomy in a serious way. He viewed sexual pleasure from the clitoris as juvenile and immature. The vagina was the woman's mature sexual center, and he thought that if women did not orgasm when they had sex with men, it was due to penis envy. As Freudian contemporary Frank Caprio writes, Whenever a woman is incapable of achieving an orgasm via coitus, provided the husband is an adequate partner, and prefers clitoral stimulation to any other form of sexual activity, she can be regarded as suffering from frigidity and requires psychiatric assistance. Anatomically speaking, the vagina serves a reproductive purpose and lacks the degree of sensitivity of the clitoris, which has no other function than that of sexual pleasure. A 2017 study published in the Journal of Sex and Marital Therapy reports that only 18% of women, less than 1 in 5, can even achieve an orgasm through vaginal stimulation alone. So yeah, not so good with a fundamental understanding of women's anatomy. In a 1970 essay, Anne Coate goes on to argue that the myth of the vaginal orgasm popularized by Freud perseveres primarily because, quote, "...the best physical stimulant for the penis is the woman's vagina. Holding the power to make a woman orgasm boosts a man's ego, perpetuating the Freudian stereotype that women are a mere appendage of men." In response to his belief that many of women's ills belong to the fact that they didn't have a penis, and were jealous of men for having one, a female contemporary came up with the alternate theory of womb envy. Also known as vagina envy, this is an alternative theory that states that men are actually jealous of women, because they do not have a womb, and thus cannot create life. To make up for this jealousy, men tried to construct businesses instead so it feels like they're creating something. One feminist even makes the argument that Mary Shelley's Frankenstein is essentially a story about a man with a serious case of womb envy. Perhaps Freud's wildest theory, at least associated with penis envy, which is saying something, is the plating or weaving theory. According to Freud, women were born with a genital deficiency, an inherent inferiority that combined with their lack of aggression, led them to contribute little to the advancement of civilization, save for one skill, plating and weaving. Why? Women were motivated to invent plating and weaving out of shame. Not shame for not having invented the cool things men had invented, but of their unconscious desire to hide their shameful castration. According to Freud, early women attempted to braid their pubic hair together in order to better conceal their lack of external genitalia. Having mastered the plate, women easily went on to invent the art of weaving. There is, of course, no anthropological evidence to back up his theory on the origins of weaving, as there was rarely evidence from other scientific disciplines to back up most of Freud's proclamations. And I know some people pronounce the word... P-L-A-I-T as plat like they do on The Great British Bake Off, but I've always said it as plate. Intersecting the topics of homosexuality and misogyny, Freud believed that homosexuality in men, while neurotic, was not particularly problematic. Lesbianism, on the other hand, was a gateway to mental illness. This is because only men have moral sense to control their homosexual desires. Boys aren't born with this moral sense, but acquire it through the castration complex, the fear that their father will emasculate them from misbehavior. Having no external genitals to fear for, girls and women will lie and connive to get what they want. They must be guided through civilized life by their father and then their husband. Because lesbians don't marry men, they remain loose cannons, fundamentally untrustworthy. Freud's daughter Anna was his closest intellectual and emotional companion, and a lesbian. Sort of flies in the face of Freud's teachings that lesbianism is always the fault of the father and is curable by psychoanalysis. Freud cautioned followers that analysis is an erotic relationship. Analyst and patient must scrutinize the amorous feelings that flow between them. This being the case, by rules he asked his followers to honor, Freud could not attempt to cure his own daughter's lesbianism. When Anna was 23, and in an apparent relationship with a woman, he took her into analysis anyway. For six nights a week for the next few years, he and Anna dissected her masturbation fantasies, which featured an angry father figure beating a child who made a mistake over which she had no control. Can you think of anything more cringeworthy than having to discuss your fantasies with your father and having him make them about himself? How about if he then lectured on them? Freud spoke publicly about Anna's fantasies at a conference while Anna sat on stage in the wife's chair near the podium. In a small saving grace, he didn't actually identify the patient, but we know it was Anna because when she wanted to become an analyst, She described the same fantasies in a paper called Beating Fantasies and Daydreams. Try as he might, Freud was never able to correct Anna's lesbianism. She enjoyed 50-plus years of happy monogamy with the heiress of the Tiffany jewelry fortune. Homosexual desires were also the root cause of paranoia in Freud's thinking. Unreasonable paranoia is a commonly observed symptom associated with mental illness. For whatever reason, Freud saw paranoia as a projection of unconscious homosexual desire. Freud also thought that paranoia might be a defense mechanism for protecting self-esteem, and this is the only aspect of the theory of paranoia that is still taken even a little seriously today. Later psychoanalysts generally discarded Freud's original theory of paranoia and came to agree that the deeply hidden psychological cause was not a projection of repressed homosexuality, but rather a projection of repressed childhood aggression. This theory seems to make a bit more sense, since most paranoid people are paranoid about someone or something intending to harm them. From a purely scientific perspective, however, the cause of paranoia is still unknown. But Freud also believed that people had an innate bisexuality, though that term refers more to gender than to sexual preference. Everyone has both active and passive aspects to their personality and behavior. Freud thought active aspects as being inherently masculine and passive aspects as being inherently feminine. Therefore, everyone must be a mix of masculine and feminine components, and so everyone must be inherently bisexual. Bisexual. This idea was strengthened, if not arrived at, by his colleague Wilhelm Fleiss, the ear, nose, and throat doctor from earlier. He became Freud's closest friend through Freud's most productive period, and Freud would bounce ideas off of Fleiss and vice versa. Like Freud, Fleiss was highly ambitious and able to dream up some pretty wild theories. Both men also believed that sexual problems, masturbation in particular, played a key role in the cause of neurotic illness. Even though Fleiss was an ear, nose, and throat specialist, he began to treat hysteria, depression, and anxiety in patients by applying his own weird fusion of psychoanalysis and nose doctoring. Fleiss believed that changes inside the nose were directly related to the genitals, and that this was especially observable in menstruating women in whom he would sometimes cauterize the nasal passages or remove part of the nasal bones to stop excessive menstruation. Since nasal passage changes were observable in both sexes, according to Fleiss, that was consistent with our bisexual constitution. Freud and Fleiss eventually had a falling out, when Fleiss began to insist that Freud had stolen his ideas about innate bisexuality, which he had confided to Freud, but had not yet published. Sometime after the relationship ended, Freud explained in letters to a friend that Fleiss's influence over him had been a manifestation of Freud's own latent homosexual longing, which he had managed to overcome, unlike paranoid people. Interestingly, Freud later encountered a similar problem in his relationship with Carl Jung. It seems like Sigmund Freud never met a treatment he didn't like, He practiced electrotherapy for at least two years, though he claimed to have soon realized it was a placebo and have promptly stopped using it. He sent patients to spas for immobility and fattening regimens. He prescribed hydrotherapy. He steered patients to a gynecologist who treated hysterical women with surgical procedures like hysterectomies and clitoridectomies. He put patients in needless jeopardy acting on impulsive, sometimes fatal, misjudgments. Freud's pattern of patient treatment showed that he interpreted transient symptomatic improvements as cures and failed to do any follow-up. If you looked a little better, you were on your own. In the first few years of his practice, he was preoccupied with the rank and status of his patients. He came to specialize in one particular disease of the rich, hysteria, which could never be cured, and which generated a continuous stream of income. When some of his hysteric patients were subsequently shown to have organic diseases, he still maintained that hysteria was part of the clinical picture. He never admitted being wrong, in one case saying that, while his diagnosis had not been correct, it had not been incorrect either. A prime example of this behavior is the case of Anna O., one of the foundational cases of psychoanalysis, the prototype for the cathartic cure. Freud and colleague Joseph Brewer claimed that Anna O. had recovered after treatment, when in fact she had gotten worse, to the point of needing to be hospitalized. After leaving psychoanalytical treatment, Anna improved on her own and eventually led a successful life as an activist opposing the sex trade. Freud claimed that her activism was a manifestation of her unconsciously wanting to prevent her mother from having sex with her father. It's entirely possible that Anna O. didn't even have a psychiatric illness, but rather a physical, neurological one, and many of her most troubling symptoms were caused by the morphine addiction that came along with her treatment. Looking back to ancient Greece for a name again, Catharsis is when people feel better after venting their feelings, a term Aristotle coined after observing the audiences of Greek tragedies. The cathartic method involved using hypnosis to recall the traumatic event at the root of a patient's neuroses. Freud used and developed the cathartic method along with hypnosis before arriving at his more effective theory of the psychoanalytical technique. Freud recognized a number of problems with the cathartic method, which eventually led him to abandoning it. For starters, it had no lasting results, but at the same time, Freud never disputed its immediate effectiveness. Some analysts still use the cathartic method today, with things like encouraging angry patients to punch pillows, though many therapists argue against it, claiming that it only makes people more angry. Only around one out of every 20,000 Americans still use psychotherapy, but many who do value it highly. Likewise, those who still practice psychotherapy don't really take Freud literally. Psychotherapists who rely on theories derived from Freud do not typically spend their time lying in wait for phallic symbols, psychologist Drew Weston said. They pay attention to sexuality because it is an important part of human life and intimate relationships, and one that is often filled with conflict. For the Freud faithful, it probably helps that the famed psychoanalyst actually coined the terms used to describe those who stand in denial. Freud discovered and taught about the unconscious mind and psychological defenses, including denial and repression, said psychiatrist Carol Lieberman, So, in fact, in trying to deny Freud's insights, people are actually confirming them. The primary trouble with Freud was that, while his ideas appeared intriguing and even commonsensical at times, there's very little empirical evidence to back them up. Modern psychology has produced little to substantiate many of his claims. There's no scientific evidence to support the idea that boys lust after their mothers and hate their fathers. His notion of penis envy is laughable, and even tragic. There's no proof of the id, ego, or superego, and no evidence to support the notion that humans develop through the oral, anal, phallic, and genital psychosexual stages. Nor that the interference with one of these stages leads directly to specific developmental outcomes. And we can't forget his stance that only mature women orgasm through vaginal sex and women who climax via clitoral stimulation were somehow developmentally stunted. There's also no evidence that Freudian psychotherapy is any better than others, including Skinner's behavior modification therapy, systematic desensitization, or even assertiveness training. And now, on balance, our final guest presenter for the day, Kate from Ignorance Was Bliss, Kate definitely has the bona fides for this project. She has several degrees in mental health counseling, clinical psychology, and criminal justice, has worked in forensic psychology and crisis evaluation, and has taught at several universities in New England. Her show, The Ignorance Was Bliss podcast, is about crime and psychology, who gets locked up and who gets the key. The answers may make you uncomfortable
6: graduate-level psychology classes are set up in a way that I'm kind of surprised that there's not like a line of thunderstorms down the center of the room within minutes of the students all taking their seats. Because on one side of the room, you get this handful of students and there are fewer and fewer each year but they are die-hard Freudian psychoanalysts. They just buy into it hook, line, and sinker. They have found interpretation of dreams or concepts like repressed memories to be really personally useful sometimes professionally also but by and large they start saying real personal things real fast in those classes because they feel like it's relevant even if it makes other people uncomfortable that's its own thing on the other side of the room you get people who are like rabidly against freud There's nothing that man could say that was correct. He just wasted tons of money and time and killed ridiculous amounts of trees. They don't want to know what he said. They think he's a pervert. And that, no, sometimes a cigar is not just a cigar. It's always a penis and you're always a bad dude. Like. Those are the two attitudes, right? On one side of the room, they want to call him daddy. And the other side of the room, they want to beat him to death with his penis cigar. It's exciting. So on the days when we have to learn about Freudian concepts, which can be a whole course depending on what level graduate studies you're doing, or it could just be a day, it almost doesn't matter. The tension is thick. And each side of the room often leaves sort of shell-shocked a little horrified, because it turns out that those who support Freud, they're like, his ideas have held up for 200 years, he knows what he was talking about, he wrote all these books, and they all work together well, and it makes sense, and so the research holds up. And the professor, whether it's me, or whether it's somebody random and not ready for this maybe, or somebody seasoned to be on their ears, the head swivels over, you give them the sort of they're there. Look, like you give a child when they're about to realize that Santa Claus might not physically be real, maybe? And you say, actually? His first several books were based on one human being, on his thought process about one person, and so it's real in depth. But he never even met her until most of the first book had been written. And you watch their shoulders droop as they realize no this doesn't hold up to research very well at all it's nice theory and there's a certain degree of what we call validity which means yeah it probably means what it says he means he he seemed to be fairly articulate but there's not much in the way of reliability meaning that you can't test it and get the same result more than once because there's more than one person in the world sometimes there's even like three or four people you know And so, Freudian concepts just generally don't hold up. The idea of repressed memories is sort of moved through the controversial stage into the yeah, sorry, no phase. It's no longer admissible in most American courts. And it's just, eh. The idea of multiple personalities. Not a thing. Really not. And even the idea of dissociation is not what Freud says it was. And so those were like the big, exciting concepts. And I could talk you through them all, but I don't need to, because they've fallen off the shelf. And so, the other side of the classroom starts to get smug. Starts to think like, yeah, screw Freud, he didn't know what he was talking about. Let's bring on the bashing! And then the teacher kind of flips the head to the other shoulder, and now... Points out to those students that maybe they want to rethink their belief in the tooth fairy because, sorry kids, the problem with Freud is that some of his ideas are so solid and so useful still today. In almost every genre of psychology, there's at least one Freudian concept that if you were to pull that out from under, the whole table would fall over. Uh, For instance, Freud's concept of the ego means of the self. So, he he, he pictured it as id, ego, superego. So, id is your impulse, ego is your sense of self, and superego is like the Jiminy Cricket on your shoulder that tells you what to do and more often tells you what not to do. Well, the impulse thing is there. It's, it's a thing, but we, we kind of look at it in different ways than Freud did. And the superego, also, we look more in terms of culture and in terms of what we are socialized to do and not to do but the ego man he got it right in a lot of ways and the way that freud kind of explained the ego this is your sense of self it's who you are and it's how you relate to the world because that matters but it's mostly how you think of yourself in relation to the world if that makes sense you have to understand who you are to a degree before you can safely navigate social situations on your own before you can really form long-term adult relationships. That kind of thing. You know thyself, right? That's even older than Freud. So the concept of the ego, picture a circle. And in ideal situations, you get a circle like you would draw with a compass. It's solid. It's pretty nicely spherical. It's not too dark, but you can see it. Freud talked about sort of the extremes of if you are too open to outside influences, so if your circle is like a dotted line or maybe it's not filled all the way in, then that means you don't have adequate defenses against the world. There are ways that the world can get in and mess with your head, and that's not really a safe thing. Like, you want to have a good defense system in place. You don't want to be using it all the time, but you want to have to. If somebody comes on the attack against you and starts telling you terrible things about yourself, you want to be prepared to first tell them to go screw and then to decide like how much of that is accurate and blah blah okay so you don't want a circle that's dashed lines or broken up or whatever but on the other side you don't want a thick dark black line you don't want it bolded. That's no good either because you, then you're too walled off from the world and you're not able to allow other people to understand your thoughts and you're not able to really understand other people. So you're not making careful and solid connections. But it all makes sense and it really is a helpful tool when you're talking to people about why they may need to be more careful around other people or why they may need to let other people in more. And that's all Freudian. Like, that's at the heart of a lot of Freudian concepts and a lot of the rest of psychology. And you just can't function that way. And you watch those anti-Freud students just slump and pout in their chairs because it's valid. And we always hate when somebody that we despise makes a valid point. So, at the end of the day, Freud was completely full of it on one side, but really good at what he did on the other. And so that ends up kind of destroying everybody. I don't know if that makes like a rainbow over the thunderstorm or if there's just lightning strikes. I'm not really sure. I'm not going to take the analogy that far. My podcast is called Ignorance Was Bliss. I look at how people do the things they do. What's their story or what's their process? My goal is to humanize if I can't normalize people's behavior, whether that means just any given person's story or whether that means talking about serial murder. Are you sure you really want to know?
0: And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. I want to extend a big thanks to all of my guest presenters and especially to my audience for being with me this past year. While it's no small amount of work, it's been my pleasure to produce this podcast every week. Each time I see someone retweet an episode or comment on a social media factoid, it just makes my day. I hope you'll be with me for the next 50 episodes and beyond, as well as for my next big project, a podcast and YouTube channel with my niece called Science with Savannah, age seven. Look for that in the spring. Thank you for listening, and thanks for spending part of your day with me.